Well, friends, please turn again in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14 and either follow along or listen as I read verses 32 to 42 of Mark 14. They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Well, we came to this passage last week and recognized that this is one of the most poignant passages in all of the Bible. And friends, it doesn't do justice to this passage to just preach one sermon on it. The event here is so momentous, it is so instructive that we need to take it up at least one more time, maybe another. Last week, we looked at this scenario from the standpoint of the emotional life of Jesus. In particular, we focus on Jesus' desire for human sympathy. In the experience of this overwhelming sorrow, Jesus reaches out for the sympathetic presence of his friends He says, keep watch with me. Now, to be sure, that was intended for their good. Everything Jesus did is always for the good of others. He is the ultimate selfless one. And it was for their good that they might understand more of the the nature of the kingdom he came to bring. It was not a political military kingdom. It was a kingdom that involved suffering. Peter would later testify that he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So he called these three to be with him for their benefit. But there's good reason to suppose that this plea to keep watch with me was for his sake as well. Jesus yearned for human sympathy in his suffering. And we took away from that the application that it's right for us to desire the compassion and sympathy of our fellows. We have been made in God's image as social beings, and I noted that there is to be a healthy interdependence among us, not an independence, not an aloof, self-sufficient, island-like independence, but there is to be an interdependence among us as the people of God. But while Jesus yearned for that human sympathy, we saw that he was sorely disappointed The lateness of the hour, the weightiness of the things Jesus had told them did not enable them to keep their eyelids open, and they nodded off. Luke puts it this way, he found them sleeping from sorrow. And then we hear the plaintive words of Jesus in his disappointment, 
Could you not keep watch for one hour? And the application we took from that is we too will be disappointed. We look to our friends, we look to our fellows for encouragement, support, compassion, and sometimes they will let us down. Sometimes our nearest and dearest family members or friends will not come through in the clutch for us. They will disappoint us. And I noted that when that happens, it is important that we don't become cynical, filled with distrust, and say, I'm never going to trust anybody again. I've been burned too many times. Certainly that we don't become bitter, but rather that we do what was my third point last week, Jesus' ultimate dependence on divine support. He looked to his friends for sympathy, for help, for encouragement in that time of agony. And they didn't come through. They let him down. But Jesus was not left unsupported. He was brought through the trial. He was strengthened. Courage was infused in him. And he had the resolution to go forward, as we will see this morning. But the help did not come from men, but it came from God. His father did not forsake him. Luke tells us that in the garden, the father sent an angel to strengthen his son. The application for us, yeah, we we look for help. We look for support from our fellows, and we should. But ultimately, and primarily, we need to look to God. Only God can supply us with the help, the strength, the compassion, the grace we need in every situation of life. And when our friends fail to spread the net of sympathy, or if their net has gaping holes in it, God will send help from heaven. You can count on it. But today we're going to make another pass through this passage, and we're going to focus on the victory that was attained in the garden. And here we will see more of the redemptive historical purpose of this narrative. I want us to see three things. Jesus' distressed condition there in the garden, Jesus' desperate supplication or prayer, and Jesus' decisive resolution. First, Jesus' distressed condition. What makes this portion of Scripture so gripping and so memorable is the intensity of the emotion that was experienced by Jesus there in the garden. Consider with me for a few minutes the depth of his distress. Look at the words in verse 33. It says he was very distressed. Now, that's a Greek word that has a preposition in front of it. And oftentimes, when a preposition is in front of a word, it strengthens its meaning. The basic word, the the root word, means to be amazed or astounded. And it has the idea of rendering immovable, being so overwhelmed with feeling that you are paralyzed into inaction. For example, in Mark 1, the people were amazed at Jesus when they saw him cast out an unclean spirit. In Mark chapter 10, the disciples are amazed at Jesus when he deals with that rich young ruler and the man turns away and they're amazed and they say how hard it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. But the word strengthened with the prefix in front of it is used in Mark 16 where the women enter the empty tomb on resurrection morning and they see a young man with a white robe who we know to be an angel and they were amazed. But the closest parallel to the use here when it says Jesus was very distressed is actually not in the New Testament, but it's in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, where David, not yet a king, is being hunted like an animal by Saul. 
And this is his testimony in 2 Samuel 22, 4 and 5. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction or Belial overwhelmed or terrified me. That's our word. Jesus was overwhelmed with terror. He was very distressed. The next word is he was troubled. Troubled. Adamaneo. One possible derivation of this word, it could be the word for home with an A in front of it, which negates it. The idea that Jesus was away from home. Home is the place of comfort, isn't it? It's the place of familiarity. Now, Jesus in the garden was beginning to enter uncharted territory, uncharted waters. All that he was experiencing was unfamiliar, was uncomfortable. It was a terrifying realm, and so he was troubled. He was, as it were, away from the comforts and security of home. Verse 34 says he was deeply grieved. I mentioned that last week. It's the word for grief with a little preposition peri around it. Peri means like in perimeter. He was not only grieved, but he was surrounded by grief. And then it says finally in verse 34, to the point of death. The grief was so great that he was sinking under the weight of it. What Jesus was experiencing in the garden was so overwhelming that he thought that the, the systems of his body were going to shut down, that the powers of biological life would cease to function, and he actually thought he could die there in the garden. The expositor's Greek t- Testament comments, though Jesus had long known and had often with realistic plainness spoken of what was to befall him, yet the vivid sense of what it all meant came upon his soul at this hour as a sudden appalling revelation. Alfred Edersheim comments, and now of a sudden, the cold flood broke over him. Within these few minutes, he had passed from the calm of a short victory into the anguish of the contest. The depth of the distress of Jesus in the garden, but but what was the cause of his distress? The emotion he experienced here, as indicated by these words, was very intense. But what caused it? Obviously, according to verse 35, it had to do with the hour he was facing. What was the hour that he asked Father, if it be possible, you know, don't let me go through this hour? Well, the word hour in the Greek simply means a predestined point in the future when something will happen. And for example, in John chapter 5, Jesus says, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. There's a future hour, future time coming when there will be a a general resurrection of the dead. But for Jesus, when he spoke of his hour, or when the gospel writers speak of his hour, as I think you know, they're speaking of the hour of his death, when he will die on a cross. So John 7.30 says, So they were seeking to seize him, and no one laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. God protected him because it wasn't the time for him to be captured and die. In John 12, 27, just a couple days before the garden experience, he says, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And in John 13, 1, Jesus, knowing his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world. And in his high priestly prayer, Father, the hour has come. 
But what was it about this hour of his upcoming death that Jesus so dreaded? Listen to some quotations from commentators who tend to agree. Lenski, the Lutheran commentator, says, but we should not think that the rapid approach of physical suffering and death brought on this agony of Jesus' soul. William Lane, a commentator on Gospel of Mark, says the dreadful sorrow and anxiety then out of which the prayer for the passing of the cup springs is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny, nor a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death. Alfred Edersheim agrees. But what, we may reverently ask, was the cause of this sorrow unto death of the Lord Jesus Christ? Not fear, either of bodily or mental suffering. And J.C. Ryle, it was no mere fear of the physical suffering of death, which drew them, that is, these expressions of sorrow from our Lord's lips. So what was it? Was it that made that hour so dreaded by Jesus, so terrifying to him? Commentators are again agreed that what instilled that fear in the human soul of Jesus was the fear of becoming a curse for sin, of having the sins of his people heaped upon him on the cross. Lane goes on to say, it is rather the horror of the one who lives wholly for the Father at the prospect of the alienation from God, which is entailed in the judgment upon sin, which Jesus assumes. J.C. Ryle, it was a sense of the enormous load of human guilt, which began at that time to press upon him in a peculiar way. It was a sense of the unutterable weight of our sins and transgressions, which were then specially laid upon him. He was being made a curse for us. He was bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows according to the covenant he came on earth to fulfill. He was being made sin for us who himself knew no sin. His holy nature felt acutely the hideous burden laid upon him. These were the reasons, says Ryle, for his extraordinary sorrow. Lenski agrees. He goes on to speak of Jesus laying down his life, giving his life as a ransom for many, being made sin and a curse for us. The imagination faints before the images thus rising up before it. Who can conceive all this abominable sin, all this damnable curse? The Holy Son of God is to plunge into it all now. The great and awful moment is almost present in the approach of Judas. And William Hendrickson, the anguish of death, not just physical death, but eternal death in the place of his people to atone for their sins was coming upon Jesus now more than ever. That is why he speaks of sorrow to the point of death. And Hendrickson comments on Hebrews 5, 7, where it says that Jesus uttered loud cries and tears, pretty clearly a reference to Gethsemane. And Hendrickson comments, and that is death unimaginable. We cannot fathom the depth of Jesus' agony when he experienced eternal death. We can only describe it as the author of Hebrews does, we conclude by saying that Jesus, in his separation from God, experienced hell itself. That's what hell is, ultimately. It is a place, but it is separation from God. Now, not separation from the wrath of God. God is present in hell, in his wrathful presence. It is separation from the love, grace, mercy, kindness of God. That's what hell is. 
That's what Jesus experienced and anticipated experiencing on the cross. We need to understand what terrified Jesus to the core of his being. And it was as a man he suffered here. As a man, he sweat drops of blood. It was an utterly unique experience that he would undergo. When his father, with whom he has had fellowship from all eternity, would withdraw from him and pour out his wrath upon him. That's why we can never speak of experiencing our Gethsemane. No, no, that was unrepeatable. That was once for all. We will never know the depth of fellowship the Son of God has with God the Father, and therefore we cannot possibly understand. I think into all eternity we will not understand the depth of agony that he experienced to have that relationship broken. As that beautiful song says, God estranged from God. But, you know, even though we can't understand the depth of Jesus' suffering in the garden, we can make good use of it for ourselves. And I think in this way, would you agree with me that remaining sin is very stubborn in our lives? It's very tenacious. The sin that Hebrew says easily besets us. Sin is very pugnacious within us. It's hard to kill, and yet we're called to kill it. Would you not agree that we need every incentive, every motive possible to kill sin in our lives? Every legitimate righteous motive that we can marshal to put to death sin we need. Here is a good incentive to contemplate and have riveted to your mind's eye the agony of soul and the anguish that the Son of God experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane and then later on the cross. How will that serve us? How can you take sin lightly when it brought such anguish and agony upon the soul of Jesus? How can we have a careless indifference to sin when we realize what bearing that sin did to Jesus in the garden and would do to him on the cross. And friends, I trust you share with me the conviction that Jesus just didn't die for sins indiscriminately. He died for particular sins. He died for your sins and mine if you are a believer. The Bible says he died, laid down his life for the sheep, for the church, for his people. And so here's a good reason why we should have clearly etched in our minds the anguish and the agony of Jesus in the garden. To call that image to mind when we are tempted to sin or after we have sinned so that it might quickly shame us and humble us and lead us to godly sorrow and repentance. Jesus' torment of soul was because he anticipated suffering for your selfishness, for your sinful anger, for your sinful arrogance and pride, for your self-pity, for your sexual lust, for your sinful covetousness and jealousy. May that contemplation keep us from sin or quickly lead us to repentance when we do sin. But if you're sitting here this morning as an unbeliever, will you please learn from Jesus' experience in the garden, what you will have to face one day unless you repent and believe in Jesus. 
What brought such anguish and agony to the soul of Jesus was contemplating experiencing the wrath of God for sin, not his own, but the sins of his people. It was the wrath of God that he feared. The Bible says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And my unbelieving friend, unless you believe in Jesus, you will have to bear the wrath of God for your sins, and it will be unmixed with mercy. And so I would plead with you, you don't have to face God and face his wrath. If you will but repent and put your faith in Jesus, let him be your savior. Let him be your sin bearer. Then when you die or when Jesus comes, you will not face one drop of his wrath, but only the welcoming smile of God. Because all your sin has been borne by Jesus. But if not, you have to bear it. You have to bear the anguish of the wrath of God in that day. Please flee to Jesus. But from the description of Jesus' distressed condition, the narrative moves to his prayer of supplication in verses 35 and 36. He went a little beyond them, the three. He fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass, pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus wants his friends to watch with him, but he leaves them at a certain place and he goes farther into the olive grove. Why? Because even though he wants their sympathetic presence, he's got to struggle alone. His burden must be borne alone because his struggle is a unique one. He is the Messiah. He is the Lamb of God. He is the once-for-all sacrifice for sins. And no one can share that role with him. Not even God the Father. Not even the Holy Spirit. And so he goes off by himself to pray. About his desperate supplication, I want to note two things. It is agonizing prayer. The text says in verse 35, he fell. Better from the original, he was falling. It's the Greek tense that indicates he was falling. He didn't just fall once. He was repeatedly falling. Now, was he deliberately casting himself down in weakness and dependency upon the Father? Or was he so weak that he just kept falling down? Hebrews 5, 7, I cited earlier, it says, In the days of his flesh, he offered up loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. This may have happened many times, but I think surely it refers to the Garden of Gethsemane. His humanity cries out for release from the pressure of the hour and the cup. The hour, of course, was the hour of his death when he would become sin, when he would become a curse for sin, being abandoned by his father. The cup, the cup refers to one's lot in life. And in Jesus' case, it was the cup of God's wrath. Revelation 14.10, which we're coming to in a few weeks, speaks of those who worship the beast. And it says, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. Jesus' agonizing prayer was in light of the hour of his death and the cup of God's wrath, which would be heaped upon him on behalf of his people. But we need to see here that Jesus' prayer was a trusting prayer. 
First of all, he trusted the person of his father. As he comes to pray, he was saying, Abba, Father. As you know, that Aramaic Abba is a term of intimacy, Papa. In the midst of his suffering, he called God, Papa, Father. He knew that God was his father and that he would take care of him in a fatherly way. And by the way, Father becomes the new covenant name for God because what Jesus would do would bring us into such an intimate relationship with God that we're now privileged to call him Father. So he trusted the person of his father. He trusted the power of his father. Father, all things are possible for you. He recognized as God, but now man as well, that God is omnipotent. God can do whatever he wants. Psalm 135, 5 and 6, For I know that the Lord is great and that our God is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and earth, in the seas and all the deeps. But he trusted the person of his father And he trusted the power of his father because he trusted the purpose of his father in bringing him through this agony and anguish. Jesus knew as he suffered in the garden that the outcome of his sufferings and his death would have a good issue. It would have a good result. Isaiah prophetically promises this, speaking of the servant of Yahweh, the Messiah, Jesus, if he would render himself a guilt offering, he will see offspring. He will prolong his days. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And in those amazing words in John 6, 37, he says, all that the father gives me shall come to me. He who comes to me, I will not cast out. I've come to do the will of my Father. This is the will of the Father, that of all that he has given me, I raise it up at the last day. Jesus' prayer in the garden was a prayer of confident trust because he knew the purpose of his Father in subjecting him to that. He knew that his Father would take him beyond the garden, beyond the cross, beyond the resurrection and the ascension and his exaltation to the salvation of a people, the people he had come to save. And it was guaranteed because they were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And so Jesus had confidence in his father and in his prayer because he knew that the ultimate issue would be the salvation of a people. That's why he came. And in his prayer, Jesus is an example to us. First of all, he's an example in the priority of prayer. In times of distress and trouble and pressure, we ought to go first and foremost to God. J.C. Ryle says, the first person to whom we should turn in our trouble is God. Psalm 50, 15 says, "Call up." God says, he promises, call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. God wants to be our savior, our deliverer, our helper, our God. He alone has the wisdom, the power that we need in every situation of life. And that's why Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's why Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. 
Jesus is our example in the priority of prayer to his father, but he's also an example in the trust that undergirded his prayers. He trusted the father's person. In the midst of his anguish in the garden, he calls upon Abba, Father. And like I said, that's the new covenant name for God. Hardly ever used in the Old Testament. But the work of Jesus has brought us into such an intimate relationship with God that we are privileged to call him Father. When he tells his disciples to pray, what does he say? Pray our Father. And here I want to ask you a, a personal question. Are you able to address God as Father? Now, that's not the only way you can address God. You can call him Lord, Lord God, Almighty God. There are many names for God. But is Father one of them? Let me suggest that if the word Father, as you call upon God, sticks in your throat, it may be that you have too harsh a view of God. Perhaps you don't recognize that God is a father who cares for you with a fatherly concern. He wants you to know him as father. He wants you to know that he cares for you as a father. And he wants you, at least sometimes, to call him father. Now, I'm not trying to be legalistic and say every time you pray, you know, I'm going to be listening. or But I'm asking you, if you can never say the word father, Consider whether perhaps you have too severe a view of God and one that does not honor him. He is our father, and we too need to trust him and call him father. He trusted his father's power. Is that your God who works all things according to the counsel of his will, according to Ephesians 1.11? And Jesus trusted his father in the garden He trusted his person, he trusted his power, because he trusted his father's purpose. That in the midst of the worst agony, except for the cross, that he endured, he knew his father was working it together for good. I want to ask you, there are two texts in the scripture, one Old Testament, one New Testament, that ought to be the bedrock of your life and mine. Genesis 50, 20, where Joseph, after all that he had suffered, was able to say with grace to his brothers, you intended it for evil, God intended it for good. You had an intention, but God had a super intention. And then Romans 8, 28, where we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. Those verses need to be the bedrock of our lives so that in the midst of every circumstance of life, even the darkest, saddest providences of our life We can say, Father, I may not understand it or see it now, but I know that it is intended from your fatherly hand to do me good. Like Jesus trusted, this is not fun. It's going to have a good issue. And so we need to trust God in the midst of every dark providence of life. Then finally, Jesus' decisive resolution If Jesus' prayer were to end with the request, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, that would have been a sinful prayer because his purpose was to come and to die. And he's praying seemingly to bypass the cross. That would have been a sinful prayer. But it is unthinkable 
that the sinless Son of God would utter a sinful prayer, and he did not. For even though in the agony of his humanity, his soul momentarily contemplated release from the pressure of the cup in the hour facing him, he doesn't stop there. He quickly appends it with the true desire of his soul. Consider the expression of Jesus' decisive resolution. Verse 36, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus had a human nature, a human will, and a divine will. The reference is to his human will. And here he submits his human will to the will of his Father. Hadn't he said repeatedly, I've come not to do my own will, but to the will, but, but the will of the Father who sent me? And up to that point, he had perfectly done the Father's will. And now he submits again to the Father's will on the threshold of drinking the cup. His resolution is further expressed in verses 41 and 42 as he calmly accepts the reality of the coming hour. You see, at the end of the struggle, the victory is won. He's going to face the hour. He's going to drink the cup. And so in verses 41 and 42, he says, it is enough, whatever that means. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Jesus is going from Gethsemane to Golgotha. And what are the implications of that decisive resolution of Jesus when he says, not my will, but yours be done? What comes of that? What comes of his willingness now to be betrayed into the hands of sinners, to be arrested, to be unjustly tried, to be beaten, humiliated, and then shamefully crucified as a common criminal on a cross of execution? What are the implications? One of them is 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The implications of Jesus going from Gethsemane to Golgotha is we have a righteousness given to us that will enable us to stand before God in the moment of our death or when Jesus comes, a righteousness which will be our passport into heaven, not our righteousness, but his righteousness imputed to us even as our sin is imputed to him. Another implication is 1 Peter 3.18 for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. The result of Jesus going from Gethsemane to Golgotha is that he has brought us to God. And we can say we have a relationship with the living God. We can say in truth, I know God. Another implication is 1 Peter 2.24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Another implication of Jesus going from Gethsemane to Golgotha and being willing to do that is now we don't have to wallow around in a sinful lifestyle, but we can live righteously. We can live according to the will of God, and we can go from glory to glory in living a holy life. Another implication is Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Another implication, 
we no longer have to fear death. The stinger has been taken out of death because Jesus bore it for us. In John 11, 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Another implication of Jesus saying, let's get going. I'm going into the hands of sinners. Going to Golgotha and to the cross is that we will never die, but we will live forever in the presence of God. You see, once in a garden, a man and a woman, our first parents, made a resolution of sorts. Whether it was impulsive or whether it was preplanned, we can't know. But their resolution was to disobey their creator. And as a result of that one act of disobedience, the whole race of mankind was plunged into sin. Now, in the fullness of time, God sends forth his son, the second Adam, and he comes to a garden. And there the full weight of the cup of God's wrath that he is called to drink comes upon him. And he agonizes as no man ever has. But on the other end, he comes out resolved. Not my will, not the will of a man who would disobey God as Adam did, but your will be done. I align my human will with your will, Father. I agree to fulfill my covenant vows, to face the hour, and to drink the cup. The result is given to us in Romans 5.19. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Dear friends, what was at stake in the garden? Nothing less than our eternal destiny. We are children of wrath by nature. We are children of wrath by practice. We were destined to eternal separation from God in a place of endless torment of body and soul. Why? Because our first parents in the beginning sinned, and we have sinned countless times since because they in the garden and we countless times have said to God, not your will, but mine be done. Isn't that the essence of our rebellion? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Not your will, mine be done. Because of that, we were children of wrath. But praise be to God that one voluntarily came from heaven, not an angel, but God himself became incarnate, took on a, a human body, and in that body was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that in him and by faith in him, we are given a perfect righteousness, which makes us fit for heaven. Brothers and sisters, what is left for us but to say every day of our lives, thank you, God the Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, but not just to say it with our words, but to show our gratitude by living lives that time and again say, not my will, but yours be done. But if you're, you're not a believer, what is left for you to do? Friends, given all that Jesus suffered in the garden and would later suffer on the cross, you need to see what a horrible thing 
unbelief in Jesus is. When God subjected his own son to that anguish and agony, when he was willing to withdraw himself and pour out his wrath upon his son for the sins of others, for you to continue to say, understand what you did, God. Understand what you did, Jesus. But no thank you is something that God will not take lightly to in the day you stand before him. Please don't continue to say, no thank you, God, but rather welcome the free offer of this wonderful salvation. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we confess that we can never fully understand your anguish in the garden But please help us to use that picture in our minds to not take sin lightly, but to resist temptation. And when we do sin, to bring us quickly to godly sorrow and repentance because of all that you suffered out of love for us to deliver us from sin, to save us from sin. We ask in your name.